good? I'm good. Thank you, Colby. I appreciate that. Yeah, I think, um, gosh, the last time I was here with you guys, I had um, less hair, maybe a little less weight. I was active duty on the time. I, th- I think I'd lo- the Lord's Supper, led the Lord's Supper maybe. Um, you were at the tire center thing, <laughs> hair care, auto parts thing. Um, <clears throat> yeah, but a lot, a lot happened since then, for sure. Um, got the invitation to come out for, for Man Down, and man, that was fantastic. Really enjoyed my time there. With the, the goal, really, of replicating that on the West Coast. Um, by God's grace, we have three pillar churches out there now. And so, um, just following your footsteps again <laughs> um, to maybe see that come to fruition. So, yeah, just super grateful. Um, bring greetings from beautiful Southern California. The weather here is actually pretty similar the last couple of days, so I appreciate that a lot. Um, I was born and raised in California. I don't do heat or humidity, so um, thank you for cooperating with me in that way. Um, we're just gonna we're gonna jump in uh, to Romans. So if you've got your Bible, you can flip over to uh, Romans chapter one. I know that you're just kind of getting started in this series, and we're just gonna look at two verses this morning. It's always interesting to to just go one or two verses because you can go so many different ways. But I, I feel like these verses are are so intricately tied together, and they really kind of set the tone for what's to come. Um, I'm, I'm I'm grateful the opportunity to be here, and I feel like, man, the, the stage has been set by, by Colby the last uh, two times, and then, you know, Clint preaching last week with uh, the mission of the church. So let's look at these two verses, and then we'll dive in. So Romans 1, we're in 16, verse 16 and 17, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Well, Lord, we just come before you again, humbled by the opportunity to open your word, be moved by your word, be shaped by your word, be compelled by your word to action. Pray, Lord, this morning that we would have set aside any distractions, anything that's on our heart or mind that's keeping us from hearing the powerful truth of your word, the transforming truth of your word. God, speak through me. Let the truth remain. Let anything else fall away. We love you. We ask for your help now. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you go back to Romans 1, 1, Paul said that he was set apart, if you remember a couple of weeks back, set apart for the gospel of God. Then in 1, 15, Paul says he's eager to preach the gospel of God. And now here in these verses, Paul says that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes in the gospel and that the righteousness of God is clearly revealed. So we see the gospel is a driving force in this book, right, um, which kind of drove the, the title of the series, I'd imagine, which is, which is what again? What's the series called again? Okay, good, you know, maybe you're not used to talking back and forth, but I'm very used to that, so I'll, I'll probably ask a lot of questions, and you might just look at me, and that's okay, 
But if you, you want to answer back, that's great too. Yeah, gospel clarity, absolutely. And so we've got this set up from uh, Pastor Colby, um, helping us understand in week one that the, the gospel is transcendent. Remember that? That the gospel is bigger than us, bigger than we think or realize. Two weeks ago, he helped us understand that in order for the gospel to truly go out from among us, that community is necessary. It's sort of a catalyst for that kind of activity. And, and this community that you have here is fantastic. And uh, I'm just very encouraged by the body of, of believers here. So um, toward the end of that message two weeks ago, he, he very clearly articulated the actual truth of the gospel. Um, the very thing that Paul is going to meticulously walk through the rest of Romans, and we're going to hit on that later, but when we started the passage, you might have remembered, it was a long time ago, you know, like two minutes ago, but he said that, I am not ashamed of the gospel. This is Paul saying, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why do you think he would mention something like that to the people in the church at Rome? I mean, why does any good leader say anything like that? Usually it's something like that is about to happen or it is happening, maybe cutting it off at the pass, right? So this begs the question in my mind, maybe your mind as well, what is exactly that they have to be ashamed about? What, what about the gospel could they possibly be ashamed about? So just a little bit of background for the people at Rome, very proud people, right? They had conquered this sort of insignificant land called Israel, Jerusalem, was nothing to them. So anything that came out of that place would have been insignificant and just kind of like dismissed. I mean, the Romans associating with important things and important people and social events, this is like a priority for them. Their identity is built on status. So a lowly carpenter who's claiming to be a Messiah who died this humiliating death would have brought no reason to gain status for them. In fact, it would have been every reason for them to be shamed just by their association with Christ. Now that's from a worldly point of view, right? But I don't think it's difficult to see why some of these people might have been ashamed of the gospel and the reception they would have received for the message they were proclaiming. But what about us? What about us today, here, right now? Are there some among us, perhaps, in some particular ways that are ashamed of the gospel? Now keep in mind there's a difference between being shamed for the gospel and being ashamed of the gospel, right? The, the Bible promises that we will face persecution and these kinds of things for the truth that we hold tightly to. So we're not talking about that. We're talking about how we might be ashamed of the gospel today. So in our context, 21st century Northern Virginia for you guys. How could we be ashamed of the gospel? This is an important question for us because it's going to potentially limit us from doing the things that God calls us to do. Because the good news that Jesus came to save sinners like you and like me by its very nature, it is inclusive of all people in its availability, right? But at the same time, it can be somewhat exclusive when it comes to the lifestyles and the kinds of things that people must leave behind in order to follow Jesus. In other words, the gospel may be for all people, but the standard of living that God calls us to immediately 
alienates people who are unwilling to set aside sinful and harmful life choices that the gospel will inevitably free them from anyway. So we have this immediate separation. All that to say, there may be some shame in the fact that the gospel compels people to, to renounce behaviors and lives that the world accepts as right and good. Does that make sense? Perhaps, maybe, there's some shame in that. Another way, maybe a little bit less detectable for, for some of us, has to do with our identity. So our new identity is in who? It's absolutely. But many of us, I would venture to guess all of us, still wrestle with that old sinful nature that rears its head from time to time. Can I get an amen? amen. All right. For me, it has to do with what people think of me. Particularly their affirmation of me. Let me quote for you the great theologian Michael Scott. Do I need to be liked? Absolutely not. I like to be liked. I enjoy being liked. I have to be liked. But it's not like this compulsive need to be liked, like my need to be praised. <laughs> Look, <laughs> I want to be liked. But more so, I value sometimes too much what people think of me. But here's the problem with that. Human affirmation can get in the way of true followers of Jesus, right? Because if I overvalue human affirmation and I actually build my reputation on what people think of me, then I run the real risk of being ashamed of the gospel. Because right off the bat, I'm associated with something that people find offensive. They reject the gospel and now they reject me as the messenger and that may not be something I'm willing to do. And so I avoid potentially the kinds of conversations and actions that might place me in a poor light because of the gospel. Our identity in anything other than Christ is in direct opposition to the great commission that Jesus gave us to go and proclaim. So it's something we all need to consider on a regular basis basis make honest assessments about our own proclamation of the gospel realizing this though there's both power in our obedience and there's grace in our failure because we're going to mess it up guys we are we're going to come into those situations we're going to put our reputation on the line then we're going to back out the last minute and we're going to walk away oh man i missed it oh well i guess god can't use me anymore yeah that's that's not how it works <laughs> but sometimes we're good at convincing ourselves that how it's working we sit on the sidelines for a season don't do that there's grace in our failure. But then we continue in community to spur one another on to continue in the commission that we've been given, right? I'm getting a lot of action from this part of the, I really appreciate that. All right, let's move forward in the passage. The remainder of verse 16, I think there's at least three, probably more, but we'll go with three aspects of the gospel that we need to examine. And the interesting thing is each one of these things is kind of going to set up what verse 17 is going to reveal to us. So, first is the realization of the gospel. The realization of the gospel. Paul says that it is the power, right? It's through the power of the gospel that salvation is realized. What does this power do? Well, it brings forth death, 
or life from death, right? Uh, reconciliation out of rebellion, a heart of flesh from a heart of stone, inheritance from destruction, forgiveness from our sin. This is an incredible power that we're talking about here, right? The gospel makes all things new, does it not? Does it make all new things, or does it make all things new? 2 Corinthians 5.17, maybe you're familiar with this passage. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. He makes all things new, and that is the power of the gospel. And we will do well to acknowledge that power in our own lives and look for that in those that we are trying to proclaim this message to. It's an incredible opportunity. I'm going to move quickly through these. Hope you're all right with that. Second is the result of the gospel. The result of the gospel. It is the power of God for what? Salvation. So this is what Pastor Colby spent a little bit of time at the end of the last message in Romans kind of unpacking. So what, what is this salvation? What exactly is the gospel? We need to know that. Let me give you a, just a, a kind of a brief summary and a tie in some concepts that I think are going to help us understand the depth of this passage. So we know that Jesus Christ died on the cross as a substitute for sinners like you and me, right? God imputed or he charged the guilt of our sins to Christ and he, in our place, took the punishment for our sins. Familiar, right? We understand this? Yeah. We deserved it. This was a full payment for our sins, which also satisfied the wrath of God and, get this, preserved the righteousness, the perfection of God so that he could forgive sinners like us without compromising his own holy standard. Right? That's important to, to remember. And the only reason this is good news is why? It's because there, there's bad news that precedes it, right? We're guilty. All of us have broken the law. Romans 3.23 is clear. For most people have fallen short of the glory of God, right? All all have fallen short of the glory of God, period. And apart from this amazing act of love, we have no avenue for forgiveness. We're guilty, we're condemned, and we're bound to an eternity apart from him. That's bad news. <laughs> we have new life and hope because of what Jesus accomplished for us. But we've got to take hold of it, right? It's free. We cannot earn it. Nothing we do positions us to earn it. It's a free gift. We don't deserve it, but it is received by grace through our faith. How many of you know Ephesians 2, 8, and 9? For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God so that no one's going to boast. Right? It's not a result of our works, period. This is the result of the gospel. It's our salvation. One quick side note on this. At the end of verse 16, it says, to everyone who believes. Now, that tense of that verb in the original language is present tense, meaning believing. It's an ongoing action. It, it is absolutely the initial act of being saved, 
but it is an ongoing thing. We, we actually see this elsewhere expressed in the New Testament. You can look at 1 Corinthians 15, 1 and 2. Paul here again says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I had preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. In other words, the saving power of the gospel is a daily reminder of what it is that we rely upon for that very salvation. And we heard it earlier, we often call it rehearsing the gospel. That truth invading our lives. It's not a one and done act, but a continual practice, a reliance upon that transformative power of the gospel. All right, the third one. It's a little bit self-explanatory, but it's the reach of the gospel. It's to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. The good news of the gospel is for all people. It's not reserved for Israel. It's not reserved for the wealthy, those that are born into a Christian home. It is not off limits to anyone, but is in fact for all people, right? Now, this probably would have been a tough pill to swallow for some of those early Jewish converts who were like, no, 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 we're, we're God's people, like, keep them away. But this is the, the, the actual teaching consistently through the New Testament. It's for all people. Jesus broke the mold and said, come, everyone. So we've got the realization of the gospel. We've got the result of the gospel. We've got the reach of the gospel. Now let's see how this ties into verse 17. So verse 17 is where we really see some key doctrines that Paul's going to actually begin to explore here and then continue that line throughout the rest of Romans, really. In verse 17 says, For in it, what is it? The gospel. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. So this directly relates to the previous verse and that the, the revealing of the righteousness of God, it, it's center stage for understanding this power that we just talked about in verse 16. We said that the gospel is realized through its power, but why is it powerful? We saw the results of the power, <laughs> we saw what it did, but why is it so powerful? Let me read to you just briefly from how John Piper says it. He says it like this. What is revealed in the gospel is the righteousness of God for us that he demands from us. The reason the gospel is, power, is the power of God for salvation, the way that the gospel saves believers, is that in it God reveals a righteousness for us that God demands from us. What we had to have but could not create or supply or perform God gives us freely, namely, his own righteousness, the righteousness of God. The substance behind the power of the gospel is his righteousness. Now you're asking, well, what is his righteousness? <laughs> and that's a good question. And here's, here's the thing about this. I'm going I'm to give you the tip of the iceberg. Because literally for the next several chapters, this is what Paul is going to unpack. And there are, there are several views, actually, if you're interested, if you read through what people think in this moment Paul is referring to, what, what are some of those things? And so 
Is it an attribute of God? Is righteousness an attribute of God? Yes. Is it God's action through which he declares to be righteous those who turn to him in faith? Yes. Is it a person's righteous status that results from God's justifying activity? Yes. These are just some of the, the viewpoints, and I would answer yes to all of them. Now, some people will spend a lot of time telling you, no, it's exact, it has to be this, it has to be that. I'll leave that for the remaining messages that will follow, what path you want to follow in that. But I would say yes and amen to all of those things so far. Actually, it's interesting. Paul goes on to use this language over 60 more times in this letter alone. In all of his other letters combined, it's only referenced 49 times. This is a huge deal to Paul. In fact, in chapter 3, he goes into a deep dive of what he really just kind of hints at in these couple of verses here. So if you came hoping to have all your questions answered about righteousness this morning, I hate to disappoint you. Just giving you a, a, a little appetizer of things to come. All right, let's look at um, the rest of verse 17. And, you know, Cody stole a little bit of my thunder. I was going to ask if anybody knew where this quote from verse 17 came from, but let's just, let's just see how your recollection is. Where, where does this quote out of verse 17 come from? <laughs> I, part of it is like, I don't know how to say that word. Is it Habakkuk, Habakkuk? Uh, yeah, I mean, however it comes out, it's fine. 2 verse 4, and I'm glad he gave us a little background on it so I don't have to go deep into that. But it says, behold, this is the verse, I'll read it. His soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. So Paul removes that personal pronoun, which again is a point of contention for a lot of people, but not for us this morning anyway. The intent is the same. Our rescue from death and destruction comes through, depends upon faith. By faith, we will not endure the wrath of God. Amen? And we will experience eternal life as we are saved from his judgment. We will live by the faith that we have in the free gift of God. So are you living in that faith today? Is the gospel powerfully at work in you, developing ways that are causing your faith to deepen and grow? That's one of the ways that Paul uses that phrase. Maybe you thought it was a little bit strange. Um, by faith, for faith. Some other translations use it a little bit differently. But, but one of the ways that he uses that is saying that our faith in Jesus is, yes, initially how we come into receive salvation, but God also works through our faith to sort of propagate, fuel, awaken more and more faith in us as we grow in our understanding and depth of who God is. So is your faith growing because of your understanding of the power of the gospel? Now, if it sounds like a lot of this is the different versions of the same thing, you're not wrong. These verses, they just, they're so intertwined together that one uh, highlights or supports another truth of the other. But really, what we, what we need to do, essentially, in my opinion, is that we need to walk out of here 
with, with a greater understanding of and appreciation for the gospel and for the righteousness that is revealed in it. A greater clarity, if you will, a greater clarity of why it's the power for salvation to everyone who believes so that I'm a big proponent of a doing sort of commitment as we walk away from these things. What is the point of all of this? Yes, it is to deepen understanding and know what the gospel is, why it's powerful. We have it by faith. So what? Like, what, what do we do with that? So that we can grow in our obedience to proclaim the life-giving truth that we have a better understanding of. That's Paul's whole point here. The reason we need to know this is so that we can proclaim it. Exactly. So if we don't walk out of here with a greater desire to proclaim that truth, I think we've missed the point. We have a greater understanding and we feel maybe a little more confident about our status and then we go about our lives and go, well, I feel, I feel better. I feel more confident. I'm, I'm, I'm good. I'll come back next week and see what, see what they have to say. I would say we missed a huge opportunity. Now, we don't have the time or the opportunity to, to go seat by seat and say, what are you going to do in response to this? I'd love it if we could, but we don't. But just because we don't ask that question or we don't facilitate the opportunity to do that doesn't mean that you're off the hook to do that in your own life. So I would encourage you right now in this moment to go before the Lord and say, in response to this, I will do this. And don't hold it to yourself because it's easy to be accountable to yourself. Like, oh yeah, I did that. Yeah, did you? Tell somebody else. <laughs> hey, you know what? I heard that message. And, and here's what I'm going to do in response to that. Um, and maybe they'll share back with you what that is. Because accountability is an important aspect of biblical discipleship that I feel like is missing in a lot of our lives. We say we're going to do something. We have good intentions. But it stops there. And this truth, everything that we just walked through, the best news in the world it deserves more than that. The reputation of Jesus is on the line and it's up to us to do something with it. That's what we're here for. That's what Paul says in the very beginning. He's set apart for the gospel. Well, guess what? If you're a believer in Jesus, so are you. To go and proclaim. And I realize, like, I'm not an extroverted person at all. Like, I have to work just to have a conversation with somebody. And some of you are like that. And some of you like myself, give ourselves permission not to do what we know we're supposed to do. I'm just not built that way. Well, you're right. You're not. But you also have the power of the living God inside of you. So it doesn't matter. Right? Okay, I'm getting a few more amens here, but the rest of you who are really quiet, you're like, eh, I'm not sure about that. I'm not quite convinced. I pray that you become more convinced <laughs> because if we don't, who is? Like you have some great pastoral leadership here, wonderful pastoral leadership, whose job is to equip you for the work of the ministry. Their job is not the ministry alone. You actually can go minister to a sick person in a hospital. You have that ability. 
You can go pray with a neighbor who just lost their child. You don't have to go, Pastor Clint, can you come pray with me? You can, if it's your first time. You know, I'm I'm not trying to put you in a box, but at the same time, man, just go and do it. You've been equipped to do it. You have the message. Now, you have enough. If this is all you have so far, the first 17 verses of Romans, you've got enough. You do. You don't need all the answers to all the difficult questions. Because I promise you, when you go up to somebody and say, can I pray for you, that's hurting, they're not going to go, well, what is substitutionary atonement really about? <laughs> and if they do, then just let's, let's turn to Romans. Let's see if we can find it, because I'm sure it's in there somewhere. They're going to say, yes, please, <laughs> or no, thank you. <laughs> but you're not responsible for their action and their response. You just got to make yourself available. Your part is obedience. Obedience to the Lord, not perfection. So I pray that you're moved to action this morning. That you can stand up with Paul and say, yeah, I've been set apart for the gospel. I have more clarity now. I don't have the whole picture, but it's coming into, into, into tune now. What am I going to do with that? What does that look like for me when I hit the ground tomorrow and the next day? that you can come back in your small groups, in your discipleship groups, whatever that looks like, for some accountability. Ask the question, what did you do this week with the message? Not in a haughty way, like, what did you do? Like, genuinely wanting to know, because that's an encouragement to me. When you say, well, man, I had this conversation with a coworker, I never thought it would be that way, but we just started talking about church and things, and, you know, the next thing I know, I'm talking about the gospel. And I prayed with him. Maybe you didn't receive the gospel. Maybe, you know, there was nothing hugely enlightening in terms of life transformation. One step at a time. One step at a time. Amen? All right, let's pray. Lord, we're so grateful for the message that we have. So grateful. But Lord, we also know that Just in our knowing is not enough. You've called us to be your ambassadors. Ambassadors who represent you here on this earth. Let us be good stewards of that office, of that responsibility, of that duty. Let us do it, Lord, sometimes with fear in our hearts, but confidence in knowing that you are with us. God, that oftentimes when we don't know what to say, Father, as we go to you in prayer, the Spirit imparts power and even words. Lord, our testimony, even what you've done in our own lives is powerful, incredibly powerful. We all know individually what you've done in our lives. We have the ability to share that. Lord, I know this is a process for all of us. We don't become overnight evangelists and there's no expectation for that, Lord, but there is an expectation for growth. And I pray that each one of us would grow this week in our boldness, in our faithfulness, in our desire to please you. Thank you. We praise you in Jesus' name.